Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 186. This week, we talk with Frida Jang about Docker and Kubernetes. Visual Studio Code gets log points. And the file manager from Windows 3.1 is finally open source and accepting pull requests. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week we have Rita Jang, software developer at Microsoft, doing lots of work with Kubernetes and Docker. How's it going, Rita? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Carl, uh, what's going on? Uh, first, I'd like to remind everybody to sign up to our sign up for our <laughs> Slack channel at slack.msdevshow.com, and that will get you into all the chatty goodness that we're having on at msdevshow.slack.com. Absolutely. Also, uh, I don't think we've officially mentioned this, but we will both be at Build this year. So that's uh, May seventh through the ninth. We will be recording podcasts. And uh, I just picked up some awesome new swag today, and maybe one or two of you guys out there uh, come find me, and uh, we will have a limited number of new swag to hand out. <laughs> yeah. We're going to leave that be a surprise. Su- it's super, pretty awesome. Yeah, super expensive. That's why it's like super limited. So um, you gotta you gotta be like a super fan to get uh, to get one of these. So um, okay, so what do we have for the comment of the week? Uh, Ahmad Awais uh, reached out to us on Twitter. He said uh, he's a big fan of the show and keep it coming. And also, I hope it's not too far out there if I told you that your show inspired me to build this. And it's a WordPress uh, uh, AI project that he's been working on. And you know, in WordPress, when you hit the add new media button, you kind of go through that dialogue and you can add stuff. Well, when you add new media, his uh, extension automatically goes to Azure, looks at the media that you're attaching and auto fills in the alt attributes for it for accessibility. And he's got a, he's got a YouTube video out there. We're going to get that in the show notes because this is a YouTube video. It's pretty cool. And he said, it's not done. So he's going to let us know when it is done. And we'll definitely bring it up again. Yeah. But I, I, I saw this and I was like, Holy cow, this is amazing. So we had a little bit of back and forth on Twitter. Uh, about this. And I, I just thought it was an awesome project. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. And it's definitely solving like, like a problem it's automating and making easier. And that's something that both of us like. Yeah. Even, uh, even if it's small, right? Like I think people think that they have to build these giant applications, but even just writing like a couple lines of code to just do like one small thing. Like if everybody was doing that all the time, the world would be so much better. Yeah. So if you want to get mentioned on the show, like Ahmad, uh, send an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. And we also really like those five-star iTunes reviews. And you told me we're somewhere else now. Yeah, we are now on Spotify. Woohoo! I don't know so who uses it, Spotify for podcasts, but they, I'm sure they're uh, out there. One of the cool things about Spotify, it means that you can also ask Alexa on Spotify and you can just say, play the latest MS Dev Show. Okay. Boom. Well, that sounds cool. <laughs> I, I have still not entered that, uh, that space. I don't, I don't have any assistance that I can talk to. It's just, it's just me and my kids. Um, okay. So let's jump into the news. So the first thing we have here, which I thought was kind of interesting was the windows file manager from windows 3.1, uh, all the source codes out on GitHub. 
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, not just how much like modern stuff that uh, Microsoft is putting on open source, but like some of the old stuff that they're just happen to clearing out. I've seen people on YouTube uh, actually get this up and running and it works. Uh, one of the questions I, I had, I, I'm not sure about the answer to this, is does it support some of the new Windows features like long file paths? Because I know that's that's something you kind of have to opt into. <laughs> I, I, lo uh, I love that there's like a whole bunch of pull requests. <laughs> is there? <laughs> yeah. The, well, there's 27 close and there's six open. Let me look at the close ones. Were any of them merged? I don't know, but like some of the code, some of the code comments are kind of interesting. Uh, I'll have a link to one in the show notes. It says, I, I shouldn't have to save this, but I don't trust anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got like access. I think it's to like a, a Windows handle or something. There is like significant conversation on some of these pull requests. Uh, include some fixes. Lots of good suggestions. You please, please break them down into specific fixes. Um, talking about the commits uh talk merge tool let's see here man and then there's questions about like some of the code and how it works i was trying to see one though if there was one that was uh merged and like what is the point oh yeah look at that <laughs> merged right there into master so let's see what they added uh they added bash shell support and uh they modified the way to check the bit the bash path um so it adds a start bash shell to menu, which opens bash on windows if it's installed. <laughs> so they are literally modernizing <laughs> the old school file explorer. That, That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So we have, we have the original code base preserved and then this thing's going to like mutate into, uh, into its own thing, I guess. That's pretty cool. Uh, were you going to mention some of the comments in there? I did when you oh, were talking about the other okay. stuff. Okay, I was totally not listening like usual. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the Visual Studio roadmap. Yeah, uh, there's a blog post uh, that outlines what the essentially for the rest of the year, what's on the roadmap for Visual Studio. And there's some stuff, pretty cool things on there, um, like F5 to run applications in uh, Kubernetes. Ooh, that's relevant. That's pretty relevant yeah. to today. Did, did you know that that was on the roadmap, Rita? Yeah, I saw a, a <laughs> of demo course. of it like a oh, cool. cu couple, like a few weeks ago, I okay. guess, by the, the de developer who did the whole thing. Okay, <laughs> very cool, very cool. What else, Carl? Uh, also, the adding the step back feature uh, of IntelliTrace to, for .NET Core, that's going to be coming out uh, in the first half, I believe. Um, adding integration directly for Azure Key Vault into your C-sharp apps. And uh, one that I... I I'm really interested in is adding multi-editing, which is multiple cursors and selection support. So you can, uh, uh, I use this all the time for, for Markdown when I'm doing a lot of bulk editing, get multiple cursors on the screen for things that you want to just bust out repeatedly. I didn't realize that wasn't in Visual Studio because that's been in VS Code for a while. Yes, yeah, so it's part of VS Code, but it looks like it's now coming to Visual Studio. Very cool. So they're both getting better. I, I bet you there's lots of cross-pollination there. So that's great to see. Yeah, and check out the link in the show notes because there's like, I don't know, 60 or 100 things that's on that roadmap. So find one that's interesting to you. Yeah, very cool. Okay, uh, the Stack Overflow Age Part 1. Yeah, uh, Joel Spolsky was one of the founders of uh, Stack Overflow. And now that Stack Overflow is over 10 years old, I know it's hard to believe, right? Yeah, it's uh, over 10 years old. <laughs> oh, my yes. God. Yes. 
Next, you'll uh, be he, telling me Jurassic Park came out more than 10 years ago. <laughs> it, it did, Jason. So is, uh, so is GitHub. Oh, really? Yeah. But yeah. That's crazy. Too. Yeah, that's crazy. Also, a couple of days ago, that was the anniversary or whatever. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Man. Yes, yeah, so time we're just getting going faster and faster. Makes so, you feel old, right? Well, yeah, because you could be. So, yeah, look at this. Ten years ago, it was uh, GitHub was founded, so that was when the company was founded. But I suppose they probably had some. Oh, yeah, launched April tenth, uh, two thousand and eight, which was ten years ago. Um, this is crazy because they always say it takes like ten years of working on something full time to be like an expert. Um, so I mean, you could now there there now exists GitHub and Stack Overflow experts. That's pretty wild. Nice. You still there, Carl? Yep. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, this article, it, you know, starts like going about from behind the scenes, like, you know, how it got started and some of the details, mm-hmm. you know, in those early days. So if you're one of those people that are interested in kind of how it got started and some of the reasons why things happened, uh, check it out. And it sounds like um, because at the bottom, he says part one, that there's going to be a, a few more articles to this series. So yep. I, I lived through this. I remember when it first came out, I definitely followed um, Jeff Atwood a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the first people on there. And just seeing this is really cool to get some of that backstory. Yeah. And I listened to their podcast and, and on the podcast, they went through a lot of this and they were making a lot of decisions on the podcast. Um, so that was pretty cool. I don't think they make it anymore. Like they stopped. I don't know if they ever started back up again. They, they did, but it's different. It, it's okay. with, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't have either of them anymore. So yeah. it doesn't have Jeff or Joel and, you know, some of the execs there just kind of having fun more than anything else. Yeah. The best part of it was just one of them saying something and then the other going on for 30 minutes why the other one was wrong. That was the whole fun of the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, I just I watched it for the drama. So it's like most of our internal discussions. Uh, no, not at all, Carl. You're totally wrong. And here's why. Here are 10 reasons why you're wrong. <laughs> uh, okay. So next story here, log points for Node.js and VS code, a way to inject console.logs into your running app. This is so awesome. Like I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to like really use this yet, but this, this just, this is great. It was funny because, uh, before you were just like, I wonder how you do this. And you looked it up. You're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Well, yeah. Cause you just, what you do is where you add a breakpoint, you just right click on there and then there's add breakpoint, add conditional breakpoint. And then there's add log point, which is the new one. Um, I should give this a try. I haven't even, uh, I haven't even tried. I mean, I'm, I've tried it like in VS code, uh, but I haven't actually like watched the logs and um, I'm going to give it a try right now. As we speak, add log point, which I say, Carl is amazing with yes. like 15, you went 15 exclamations. Okay. 16. Oh, that's cool. So you get a little, <laughs> that's cool. So what you get is, uh, the breakpoint symbol instead of being round is actually a diamond, which great job using a shape and not a color. Thank you. Um, and then whenever you hover over it, it says Carl is amazing. And with a whole bunch of exclamations. So I like that. It's still, uh, like fairly visible. So I will now start debugging and it's right at the beginning of my code. Okay. Debugger listening. Oh yeah. Look at that. Carl is amazing. Very cool. What I haven't figured out yet is where it actually stores those breakpoints. Um, I don't know if it's just like on your local machine. Um, cause I don't see anything in my checked in code that changed whatsoever, which was obviously the point, right? You don't want to change your, yeah. your checked in. You don't want to pollute your, your code, uh, with that. So um, that's one thing that I'll have to figure out and then we'll have to mention that on the show. Um, anything else you want to mention on that, Carl? 
Nope. Okay. Um, let's see here. Last story. Comparison of Azure IoT Hub and Azure Event Hubs. You want to talk about this one? Yeah. So I, this is kind of related to another story that we're not going to talk about. There's a new tier of IoT Hub. So there was the I, IoT Hub standard tier, and then there's a, a basic tier that was added, which was essentially just telemetry and security. Mm-hmm. And what what a lot of people don't know is, you know, if you look at the documentation, it's littered all over the documentation that IoT hubs are event hub compatible or have event hub compatible endpoints. Well, spoiler alert, it's because IoT hub is a bunch of event hubs that are stitched <laughs> together behind a load balancer. Mm-hmm. You know, surprise, surprise, right? And well, because of that, he, um, here's a guide of when you would want to use uh, an IoT hub versus an event hub uh, and also between the standard and the basic tiers. Uh, so if you're looking to understand the differences between those, here's a, a, a fairly short article, probably takes you about a minute or two to read, that just goes over like why you would want to use one over the other. Um, and if you're looking to do any kind of IoT scenario, you really want the IoT hub mostly for the security. Yes. So this is very, this is very cool. Um, any other comments on that? No. Nope. Should, or should we talk to Rita about some cool stuff? Man, it's just so much cool stuff in this episode. Okay, so Rita, I mean, the reason that we had you on here is because you do a lot of work around containers and Kubernetes, and we wanted to have kind of a combined episode where we talked about those things and how they actually work together. And um, it seems like the world is is converging on those technologies, so we figured that this would be a, a great time to to start actually talking about it. Plus, I've actually started uh, using these things Um I would say at, at the hobbyist level recently. So um, maybe where we should start, Rita, is, you know, if you could give us like a, a just a brief refresher on containers and kind of where we're at these days with containers. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, as you said, right, containers have uh, evolved a lot um, the past, I would say, five years, mm-hmm. um, where initially, you know, pe- most people were pretty confused, like, is it just a VM? Like, what is this, right? Um, and as a lot of uh, open source communities um, really got to work uh, together, um, all the companies, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have been uh, kind of watching the CNCF uh, community, and there are just way more companies now than there were like even a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so so lots of uh, improvements, um, and um, the reason why people are more gravitating towards containers is because it allows uh, developers an easy way to package up their solutions. Um, meanwhile, uh, ensuring that. You, you get the same experience uh, in production um, without having to worry about, hey, what, but this works on my machine uh, when I developed it, right? Um, it, meanwhile, for the operations folks, uh, they don't have to um, then have me to troubleshoot why is this application not working? Um, how do I make sure all the required resources are in place in, in this uh, you know, production server? Um, and how do I make sure it's scalable? Uh, when people are hitting this application hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing that I get from a lot of people when I start talking about um, containers is people are like, is that Linux only? So there's since there's a lot of confusion on there, can you help clear that up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it's not Linux only. Uh, there's definitely a container runtime for Windows. 
Um, so if you have a .NET application, uh, let's say you want to run IIS, um, you could totally do that. Um, but it would require a, a, an operating system that supports uh, that container runtime. And if I happen to have like a Linux container and I happen to run Windows, am I, am, am I out of luck or do those work together? Uh, it depends. <laughs> um, so, so obviously you wouldn't be able to run like say IS on a Linux machine. Um, but again, depends on your OS distro. Um, if the kernel actually supports running that particular runtime, um, then you should be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably a good point of clarity, right? Because like the only thing, the only thing that really matters is like the kernel, um, other than the kernel, you're, you're like packaging, up everything that that your application needs so um you know sort of the only variable is this is this a windows kernel is it a linux kernel um and and that's i mean that that's really just the distinction right i don't think there's it there's no are there any other flavors of containers maybe that's a good question uh yeah there there are actually you mean oh. container runtime yeah container um, runtimes yeah 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 so so as we all know uh in the beginning <laughs> Um, there, uh, Linux had its own container runtime, um, and then, uh, it, you know, Docker, the company, um, and, and bunch of folks in the open source community added a lot of features to make Docker what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, you guys probably seen the news about how, um, Simon, the founder of Docker, uh, just left Docker. Um, and, and then there is container, which is, uh, basically, you know, a, a, another uh, version of Docker, um, but a lot lighter. Um, oh boy! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so not, not to confuse you, but there are definitely other flavors. Um, and then there's also, uh, you know, folks who are working on the container interface, the open container interface, so that um, you know, orchestrators like uh, Kubernetes or uh, other orchestrators or platforms who rely heavily on containers like say uh, Cloud Foundry or um, uh, like Mesos, right? Like those are the type of uh, where they will rely heavily on the open container interface to make sure um, the orchestrators actually work across different containers. Okay, so 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 does Docker implement that open open container interface? Then, I mean, could you, if you have something that supports the open container interface, can you run those Docker containers in that system? Yeah, so okay. so the latest Docker, uh, if if you go check out the latest uh, Docker, actually, uh, it does support like clear containers and containered. Um, I I I'm not an expert on this, so like yeah. I, I I'm only like kind of just observing at this yeah. point um but but to your point like for example um you know jesse frizzell like actually added clear container support to acs engine uh which is the backbone of aks um uh, microsoft azure's uh, own flavor of kubernetes uh as a service uh so why do we do that is so that we can support um you know more than just docker container runtime yeah well, that's pretty cool. I, I, th- my only worry there, the the reason that I was a little scared for a little bit, it's like, 
the one of the strengths of Docker is like the the support that's going around everywhere, and you know because we've all sort of rallied around the same standard. Um, so it does scare me a little bit when it's like, oh, there's this new thing over here, and it's like, oh, is this going to be like the web frameworks where I have to like rewrite my code, you know, every year, uh, to you know have the latest and greatest technology? But it sounds like that's not really the case, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's why we want a common uh, container runtime interface, mm-hmm. um, so that. The, the things that talk to it wouldn't have necessarily, it will all be abstracted, right? Okay. Um, but to your point, like there are things that makes Docker containers kind of big. Um, and that's why we wanted like a lighter version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as we all follow the same interface, it should at least be able to uh, work with, like seamlessly with yeah. all the orchestrators. Okay. I'm okay with that. I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> um, so are, you know, one question, and this is really like, I think kind of a, a newbie question. And I, I hope that everybody listening has a, has a reasonable understanding of containers at this point, but like, do you want to speak to the, you know, around, um, con- the speed and the performance of containers versus VMs and like what the difference is there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I would say, you know, uh, for folks who are listening, I guess, like, ha- have you ever start a VM, right? Like yeah. it, it usually takes minutes mm-hmm. um, just because you're actually, you know, you're booting up the operating system, yeah. right? Um, whereas the reason why containers are actually much faster, uh, we're talking about seconds and subseconds because, um, you know, again, you're sharing the kernel. So, so the machine is already there. Um, and all you're doing is you're, uh, I hate to use the word booting up, but like you're, you're, you're essentially, um, Running the images on top of the uh, the yeah. uh, on top of the you're just kernel, starting them, right? and you're just adding the resources that you need. Right. Um, so you're not necess- you don't have to worry about all the extra stuff that your operating system needs to worry about, um, and that's why it's a lot faster. Yeah, and and just to help our listeners, like I, you know, I um, you know, there's there's probably people thinking like, why don't I just like copy my files over to this other system and run them? But I, I think it's, if, if you, if you actually start to use containers, you really understand why. I mean, let's say you want to set up an Nginx server, like Nginx expects a configuration file in a certain location and you'll put your web files in the, in this one folder. Um, and, and it's not that, it's not that complicated, but you, you know, you throw that into a, a Docker container and you literally do just that along with Nginx and all the binaries, everything's in that container. You start with that base image and now you can easily deploy that. Like I, I have a blog post on, it. I mean, it's literally like a three line Docker configuration to get like an, an Nginx web server running in a container and being able to run that on any machine that can run uh, Linux containers. Uh, so for me, I think that's, you know, that, that's when like the, the light bulb finally went on for me. Um, because you could make a script that's like 15 lines of code. That's like install Nginx and then do this and do that, but it might not be the same Linux variant or there's, there's like a million, there's, there's a a million reasons why we always do this thing where we, the developer classic developer excuse, you know, works on my box (laughs) and works on my machine. Um, well, in a container, right? You're shipping essentially shipping your machine uh, minus the hardware and the kernel. Yeah. So, seeing that uh, these are run so much faster and they're kind of similar in many ways, do we even need VMs anymore? Uh, yes, uh, there are still cases. I mean, obviously, your monolithic like 
legacy applications, right? Um, but then also, you know, where do you run uh, Kubernetes or where do you run, <laughs> like, I mean, yes, you can run on bare metal, but still there's probably times where you don't want to do that. So I, I definitely see, of course, like, um, it's just a matter of when do you use this? And, and, um, and obviously containers are not going to handle all the, um, you know, legacy stuff. So, and VMs are a good level of isolation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my question, you know, I, I, once I discovered Docker, then I was like Docker, all the things. And I actually went through and, uh, I I've almost, uh, Dockerized every single thing that I have on GitHub that I've written. Um, so like, should I be, should I be, uh, putting everything in a container these days? Um, it depends. Uh, I, I would say like, um, to to your point, like if it's, uh, things that you can, easily run on a um linux machine i you you should be able to mm-hmm. um where it's a little challenging is usually things that require like say uh device drivers right mm-hmm. um and that's where the container runtime actually you, you would need support there uh so for example gpu support in uh con- docker container is a collaboration between uh, obviously, uh, like NVIDIA and, and Docker and the community, right? Um, so until that's in place, it, it, that wouldn't work, uh, if, if that's a resource that we need, right? Okay. Yeah. I didn't um, think of that. That's a good point. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, last time I checked, um, for example, there's like no, uh, GPU support on the windows container today. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Last time that I pulled down uh, an image from uh, uh, from Docker Hub, I noticed that it like uh, pulled down a bunch of different layers. What are these layers in a Docker image? Ah, um, so so I I think um, we talked about like the reason why we liked it is because um, it's sort of like a recipe, right? Like where you say, okay, imagine you start with a, a blank uh, Linux machine and run these scripts and and then you end up or install these binaries and you end up with this environment that can be repeated over and over. Um, and while that's great, that's one of the benefits. Um, what the other benefit is also you get to sort of um, save uh, the, the, the output of that, um, that, that environment as, a, as, a, as another image, right? And the beauty of that is then you can use that image uh, someone else can add stuff onto it um, so that you don't have to rerun the same thing over and over. And that's also good for deployment if I'm using the same images over and over again, because then if I I don't have to re-download, like if I'm basing it upon like the ASP.NET core image that is Microsoft puts out, um, I after it downloads that for the first time, next time it only has to update the layer that has my code, right? Yeah, exactly. And so say if you are on a machine and you have to run 100 different apps for different people, uh, and let's say they're all Node.js applications, um, chances are they're all using the same uh, base baseline uh, resources, right, or binaries. So you, you all those dependencies would just live uh, on, on the machine as, as that single image. Uh, and to your point, they wouldn't have to like be downloaded every time. 
Mm-hmm. That actually brings up a good question then. So if I have a thousand Node.js applications and I base them all in the same base image, like am I adding a whole lot of overhead by by containerizing the thousand applications or is it going to be pretty close to if I was just running them on the machine itself? Uh, well, because you're sharing, right? Um, I mean, your, your actual container um, it, it would be isolated to your application, but the binary itself, um, that would be, again, the, the base layer is shared, right? Yeah. And that, that's just like stuff that your application needs, but not, not the, um, it wouldn't be duplicated every time. Right. So from a, from a disk space perspective, I'm not going to be taking up a whole lot of disk space. What about like CPU and memory then? Uh, that's, that's dependent on what the resource you, uh, is needed by the container itself at runtime. Okay. Is it usually pretty good though? I mean, is there, are, are, do you generally see like a performance hit by containerizing an app? Um, it's no different from say, you know, running, uh, in a VM, but Mm -hmm. where it is a little different and it's a, a benefit is you get to say, you know, I, I, I need this much uh, memory. I need this much CPU, for example. And if it's not there, um, it, it it wouldn't come up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or it's in the Kubernetes world, it it will actually be pending until um, that resource becomes available. The other benefit of it is also you can describe um, here's the upper limit of the resource this application should take. Mm-hmm. So if something happens, um, you know, it wouldn't uh, uh, it wouldn't crash your entire cluster. Yeah. So now I think we're sort of getting into the, you know, the, the world of, of orchestration, which, um, I think a, a, a probably a good segue into that is if I have, if I have an application that has multiple, I don't want to call them layers. I want to call them like multiple components. So I have one container that maybe is my Node.js application. And then I have another container that's Nginx, uh, which will pro- be proxying that application. So those two containers have a relationship. One should, you know, be connecting to the other one, and then it should also get exposed out. Um, so in general, like, what's the best way to, like, define that relationship between those containers? Um, so in Kubernetes world, um, let's use the example you have earlier, um, which is basically uh, service discovery, right? So um, everything that everything inside of Kubernetes will be able to discover um, as, as long as you know um, you're in the uh, you have the permission to to discover it, to talk to it. Um, but but in say in uh, in your next example, mm-hmm. um, you you'll be able to say okay for ingress of uh, this application and now every all the traffic has to go through the nginx pod right okay. um and and i and and you're telling kubernetes to use uh the nginx uh pod as the uh, the ingress controller uh and then you you have to tell the ingress controller hey um for this particular resource now uh like if i'm getting traffic for this particular resource now go uh, hit, uh route to this particular application uh or resources in, in the cluster. So in this case, you know, if you have like uh, an application running on uh, slash foo or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when traffic comes in, then Nginx controller says, hey, uh, it that should map to the full pod and it's going to ash, uh, uh, sorry, the full service and which is running uh, on a on in the cluster with its own cluster IP. And then it's going to route the traffic to that particular service. 
Okay. Which is all actually internal, right? But to the external world, they did, you know, people won't see that uh, detail. Right. So, how does Nginx know? Like, it, it has to talk to the back end Node.js service. Like, how does it know? Um, is it hard coded to like an internal IP or, you know, how do I configure that? Yeah, so uh, so there's actually a whole lot of resources on uh, Ingress controller. Um, there are many uh, types of Ingress controllers, but a lot of people start with Nginx. Um, mm-hmm. So the way it works is that um, you have to tell an, um, the Ingress controller uh, based on the path, like which service to map to, mm-hmm. and um, and Kubernetes will be able to uh, discover based on the mapping which service to hit and each service actually when you run it in the cluster it will have its own uh private ip so 10 okay. dot whatever right yeah um so so think of it kind of like a route routing table uh, of some sort and uh, so when you hit the 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 ingress uh c- controllers um public ip right uh, it will actually in, in, off of that path, you know, uh, you know, 40 dot blah, 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 mm-hmm. uh, slash full, it will actually be internally mapped to the full service at 10 dot blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then, and then do I get, so on the, on the Nginx container itself, I mean, am I just hard coding that against like an internal host name then or an internal IP? Uh, it's not. A, it's. A, it's. A, it, there's. Um. There's all kinds of Kubernetes resources, and in this okay. case, is the Ingress uh, resource. So you will have to be oh, able to tell that? it to like this path off of this path. Oh, look for the okay. service. Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And the, and the, so the okay. So everything's service discovery. I got gotcha. you. Yep. So you service discovery internally. I got gotcha. you. Okay, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Reagan provides full stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, a product manager drowning in bug reports, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes and dramatically improve the online experiences of your users. You had mentioned Kubernetes. You know, what is Kubernetes and how does it fit into this container world? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so Kubernetes is, is one of a few op- uh, options for actually orchestrating containers. Um, so when, when you're in development, like on your laptop or whatever, um, you know, you obviously, you create the Docker image and you run the image as a container, um, but when, but that's just a container that runs on its own, right? But but when you're in a large organization and you, let's say you have an application that has many many components to it, um, uh, it it's actually perfect for um, an application built off of like microservice architecture, such that your applications will be able to discover each other and each component each microservice will run as, as its own container, right? And so in that case, you would need something like uh, Kubernetes to orchestrate, you know, when when do you run which container, where do you run it, how do they discover each other, um, how do you, you know, how, how do you uh, make sure that external uh, uh, applications can talk to it, um, how much resources allocated for each container, how, how, how many uh, instances of this container do you run 
Uh, and what happens when, say, um, I don't know, the, the, the service that handles the data load gets uh, hit really hard? How do you scale it up? And what when do you scale it down? Right. Mm -hmm. So that type of thing. So that's I, I'm really simplifying it. But that's like, you know, the, the, the essence of like why you would need an orchestrator. Uh, and, and to your point, like, uh, you know, again, running a container on your laptop is like one thing, but like be able to, to, to decide where to run the container in the cluster, depending on the load. So whether that's because of your resource constraints, right, mm -hmm. or uh, the need of your resources. So say if you're uh, running a, a pod or a container that requires a GPU, you probably want a to run in, on a machine that has a GPU, right? Mm -hmm. um, so similarly with if you have a cluster with Linux nodes and Windows node, um, if you are if you have to schedule a, uh, a container that requires Windows uh, 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 container runtime, then you have to make sure you run it on the uh, Windows node, right? Yeah, well, that's pretty cool that you can do that. I think that's uh, that's a pretty neat feature. And then as far as like the maturity of Kubernetes overall, I mean, it mm -hmm. seems like it's been out for a while. It seems like it should be getting pretty mature now. Um, is like now this time to start learning it? I know, I guess the answer for you was you started learning a long time ago, but for the, the rest of us mortals, um, you know, like is now the time to start learning it? Would you wait? Um, what, what is your uh, feedback on that? Uh, I definitely say don't wait. Um, I, I love this stuff and I think um, they're, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like this is basically we're we're past the point where people are asking the the, the skeptical questions already. Like we we're already past that point where um, people are asking, oh, can when I really do this in production? Right. Um, and because we're seeing people running this stuff in production and we are basically going we're transitioning from like, oh, everyone just like sort of uh playing with this thing to like, Oh, I I'm here. I'm going to production with this stuff. And I, here are the production level requirements I need. So we're transitioning to that, to, to that, um, stage. Um, and because of that, to your point, there's a lot of features that exciting features that, um, that, that are coming to Kubernetes, um, that, that are being added, uh, every single day. So things like identity, um, you know, our back or which was added, um, you know, pretty, I mean, not, not like lately, but like uh, pretty fairly recent, um, and, and ingress, uh, revamp, right. Um, how, how do you control API, uh, machinery and, um, how, how do you make sure, um, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of work required around networking. Um, encryption is another one. So, so things that, that we are quite familiar with uh, in the enterprise world, right? Um, but because it, you know, the 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 whole community is is adding uh, continuously to add features. Um, those things are slowly coming, but uh, everyone is looking at them because all these enterprise companies are looking at uh, Kubernetes and, and and containers to actually run their stuff in production uh, with zero downtime. So. Uh, so, so we're at that, that point where everything is about, um, how do we make this thing better? Um, so definitely, uh, you know, get on it. If not already, uh, there's a lot more stuff we can do. And because this is open source, um, everyone uh, can basically like go and look at the code, 
Um, and there are always issues that you can grab and, and start digging into the code and uh, contribute. How difficult or time consuming is it for me to get a Kubernetes cluster up and running? Uh, if you're using a, uh, a managed service, um, so um, Azure has AKS, uh, and Google has a GKE, uh, and Amazon has its own. So if you're using um, some managed form of Kubernetes, is actually pretty pretty fairly easy. Um, in Azure, it's literally like one command. Uh, through the AZ CLI. Mm -hmm. um, all you need to do is just basically tell it, um, here's my credential and here's a location and here's how many nodes I want in my cluster. <laughs> um, and then bam, it just comes up in like a few minutes really. Um, and then, uh, but, but I think, you know, if, you, if you're living on the edge uh, where you want to like play with the latest features um, and, uh, be able to get into all the master nodes, then that's where ACS engine uh, can be uh, actually kind of fun. Um, because like I said earlier, ACS engine is, um, is open source and it's the, it's the backbone of AKS. Um, and because it's open source, you can pretty much like change stuff uh, as you, as you see fit. Um, but also it's, it's leading, uh, in terms of uh, features and, and, um, the, uh, getting the latest of Kubernetes. Uh, for example, I think we have 110.1 now, um, even though Kubernetes 110 just came out like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so we're always leaving on the edge. Yeah. And I, it's literally like AZ, AKS create, and then you need like a resource group name, a cluster name. Um, and then, yeah, the number of nodes, like you mentioned, and, uh, I mean, I put, I put that line into a tweet at one point just to show people like, this is the only command you have to run. I actually put in there a second command line, which was to actually create the resource group. Uh, but I found it, I found it super easy. So, I mean, I really mm -hmm. like the maturity of that. Like I don't have to, I, I tried to install Kubernetes one time and it was, I, I was not successful. Uh, but mm -hmm. with the command line, I was able to, uh, to do it quite easily. So that was, that was super awesome to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to ask like. Um, just in a, it, this is like a sort of a broad question, but like, like what is Kubernetes like really great at you? I mean, what are some like really, really great scenarios? Uh, like you, uh, so let's take the, you know, AZ CLI uh, one liner that you just mentioned. Yeah. Once you get the, uh, contain, oh, sorry. Once you get the Kubernetes cluster up and running, you, um, then you run another, uh, command to get the, uh, config the, the kube config from the cluster and and then you just basically start pushing um deploying applications to that kubernetes cluster with the kubectl cli um so kubectl is the kubernetes cli that you have to run locally to be able to talk to the cluster so for example kubectl get node and then you can inspect the node uh um, there's a, there's a lot of documentations on the group CTL CLI. Um, but things you can do are basically like the, like the basic stuff that an operator would do is like, Oh, what's a, what's the state of my cluster? How many nodes I have? Um, what type of node I have? And then how many applications are my running in the cluster? 
um, stuff like that. And, and then most importantly for developers is you will be able to then deploy your, your applications um, by telling Kubernetes, hey, use this, uh, you know, um, in Kubernetes, there's this YAML uh, configuration uh, that, can, that you can create to describe what type of deployment you want. Um, do I do you want to run a um, an application with you know ABC containers? Uh, do you want to create a service uh, for this particular uh, application? And um, as we mentioned earlier, that you can also like do ingress controllers or uh, define like, hey, I want to create a public IP for the service that I'm creating. So lots and lots and lots of uh, features um, just by doing kubectl. Um, the other one that I want to mention is there's also uh, a project called Helm, H-E-L-M, uh, which is basically um, uh, application packager for Kubernetes. So everything that I just mentioned that you can do uh, via kubectl, you can basically create a Helm package uh, that includes all of the stuff in uh, what we call a Helm chart. So then you can use Helm CLI to say Helm install, you know, Rita's application. And it basically does the deployment for you. It also um, manages application releases. Um, and you can also, you know, delete the entire application when, when you want to, like, say, delete it from the cluster. Um, and again, it's, it's just another layer on top of Kubernetes to, to make it a little easier for developers. Okay. Yeah. We actually, so for the MS Dev show, I created a, a Docker config. Um, and actually that's how our uh, site gets deployed. Um, it gets, it gets built. We've actually talked about that on the show before, um, but I wanted to get the MS Dev show also running in Kubernetes. And I did that. And then I created a, a YAML configuration that defines uh, a load balancer service. And then it also creates a deployment uh, which ends up pulling that Docker image uh, that that is our website. So it's pretty cool because you can, uh, with a simple command line, then you can tell if you have a Kubernetes cluster, you can basically say, "Hey, I want to run the MS Dev Show," and boom, you will have uh, you will have that running with uh, with multiple replicas as well. So you have high availability, which is uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Is there anything that uh, Kubernetes might not be a great fit for? Um, I, I hate to say this, but like, I, I mean, this is personal experience, uh, but you know, depends who you ask, but I, I haven't, I honestly haven't seen a lot of, uh, windows type of, uh, workload on Kubernetes yet. And I feel like in general, there is, uh, not as much support on the windows side. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, Probably one of the reasons why when I work with customers, I usually say if they're like a traditional Microsoft.net shop, I'm like, you should probably look into Service Fabric um, just because, you know, Service Fabric was created for, to to be really, really good at running um, .NET workloads. So so again, I, I don't have too much experience on this stuff, but then this is kind of one area where I feel like Kubernetes is not really made or created for. Uh, and because of that, it, you know, uh, you know, you want to have that conversation with the customer to make sure depending on their need, they, they should use the right, right tool for it. 
you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Plus that, I mean, the Linux support obviously is, has years of it, of, uh, uh, you know, production workloads versus, versus windows. So I'm sure yeah. windows will catch up and then we'll, we'll start to see, you know, the enterprise customers tend to move a little bit slower too. So I suspect like, you know, if you're working with these, these partners that are, uh, you know, using Kubernetes today, they're probably, they're probably using Linux. It's probably just a little bit different, uh, customer profile. And we'll start to see more, probably start to see more Kubernetes on windows, like you said, or, you know, like you said, they could be using service fabric. That makes a lot of sense. Right. So you mentioned this earlier and I just wanted to kind of dive into this, but you mentioned something about doing placement. So, you know, does, does this work the way that I think, I mean, can I define, um, you know, define like, Hey, I have this one, uh, service and it requires tons of memory. And this other one requires tons of CPU. Can I, can I tell, can I have Kubernetes sort of optimize which node that gets placed on? Uh, so, so there are, uh, things that Kubernetes does natively, but mm -hmm. there's also things that you can do yourself, um, to make sure the, 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 uh, the application runs in the node that you want them to. Um, and the way to do that is with labels or, um, you can taint the node and you can, but the, the point is the, there are things that we can define, right. Uh, when in, in your deployment, uh, YAML to, to make sure that the, this is actually running on the node with the resources in, with enough resource that you, you want to run on. Um, but in general, like if you don't do that in general, it, you know, it's, it's smart enough to to know, hey, if you need one GPU and all these other nodes don't have it, there's only one machine with that one GPU. It knows how to find it. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it, and it uses like, like you mentioned labels, and I know we didn't really dive into that, but I mean, you could say like, if you labeled one machine as red, and then you mm -hmm. had a service, you can define a label on that that Kubernetes service, right? And then it will, if it has the same red label, it will put it on the red machine, right? Is am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah, and and one of the things I can think of is like say, uh, like in your um, uh, one of the things is like say availability zones, right? Mm -hmm. um, is you can probably decide like depending on the availability zone, you'd probably let's say you're running multiple uh, app, uh, instances, you probably don't want them to all run in the same availability zone, right? Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've been doing a fair amount of work lately with Docker containers on IoT devices. Can can Kubernetes scale down to small devices like this? Uh, on a Raspberry Pi, yes. Awesome. Okay. How does that work? I, uh, you know, uh, if you're running, uh, you know, uh, Raspbian, it, you know, you can just pull down Docker, um, and then it would you can just run Docker like you run it on your, you know beefier machines uh it's really no different um where it is probably uh a little bit different is like you know whatever raspbian supports <laughs> uh which you know sometimes it's not everything right so yeah and and the, well we should link in the show notes too there was a uh there was a blog post by scott hanselman he was um uh, he has a cluster, I think, of five Raspberry Pis, and they're all powered off of USB. And he yeah. he installed Kubernetes on that. 
Um, and that's kind of a neat way to have like a mini Kubernetes cluster if you want to play around with. I mean, I think the easiest is to just do it in Azure. Uh, but if you actually wanted a physical cluster of machines, you could do that. And I don't know like what kind of performance he's seeing on that or whatever, but still it's kind of cool. You know, if a node goes down, I don't think he was using redundant power supplies or anything, but it's still, it's still pretty neat to be able to throw a Kubernetes cluster of five machines like into your backpack uh, for testing. Yeah, yeah, that that was a definitely a good um, a demonstration of like you know because Raspberry Pi is actually pretty pretty good for uh, a lot of workloads actually, um, so it was definitely a good demonstration of like you know I, I, like I said if you can run Docker you can run Kubernetes right um, all you need is just network connectivity between all the pies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and I actually wrote this like blog post about how to set up your own uh, VPN server on Raspberry Pi because, mm. you know, so that you, I mean, who wants like to have a dedicated machine just for VPN, right? Yeah. Um, especially if you're at home, like you just need something tiny. And so it's actually pretty perfect. Okay. I'll have to check that out because I have something running my router right now, but um, it was kind of a pain. I'd rather just use a Raspberry Pi. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great idea. And you, so you have that running in a container, or is it just running on the Pi itself? Uh, I actually did both ways, just oh, okay. to, just to see. Um, okay. So I I originally I created one just running on the Pi by itself, um, and then a lot of people commented on it, and then I was like, oh, this like I should just create a container for this. Yeah, so exactly. I did that. Okay. And, and then I did a second post for it. Okay, cool. And then, you know, in addition to Kubernetes, like, are there other container orchestrators that, that might have some feature benefits over, uh, Kubernetes, you know, that, uh, mm-hmm. know, I know you mentioned service fabric and there's some obvious comparisons to be made there, but like, are, are there people that should be using something else completely? Um, Yes. So it, it depends on your need, right? Like, so as I mentioned earlier, Kubernetes is an orchestrator, um, or, um, it facilitates the request, right. And, 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 uh, monitors the health of your, your cluster and, and make sure everything runs uh, the way you want it to run. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not a platform, right? So, um, so there are times like, especially for the more bigger companies, like they're looking for platforms, meaning they're, they're looking for a, a, a technology that um, not just do the facilitation uh, monitoring and, and resource allocation, but also, hey, uh, I want this really blown out platform that can help my developers. Um, and all the developer has to worry about is like, here, here's my code, right? Um, and, and that's where, you know, uh, so, so OpenShift is uh, basically a platform, uh, and and OpenShift is Kubernetes platform. Um, it, it has it is is Kubernetes underneath, um, but it has like a lot of the pl- platform features um, like CI/CD, um, uh, like rollbacks. Uh, I think there's also like uh, routes. Um, uh, so, so RBAC. Uh, you know, before Kubernetes had it, uh, OpenShift actually started RBAC. Um, so, but now uh, that that work has been contributed back to Kubernetes. So now everybody in Kubernetes can enjoy RBAC because we all need it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's one. Uh, the other one is uh, Cloud Foundry, and there's a lot of communities, especially job, big Java shops. They love Kubernetes. Uh, sorry. Um, Cloud Foundry and Cloud Foundry is again a, a platform and it's really good at running like 
Spring Boot apps or Java applications. Uh, and, and again, that's a platform. It also supports Docker containers. Uh, it, it, I, I think it's playing, like, I, I think they're trying to do more Kubernetes, like integration there. Um, so, so, so definitely looking forward to see more developments there. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, but to your point, like if, if your traditional .NET shop, uh, service fabric is really good at that. Okay. And again, that's a platform, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. So is there anything that we missed or forgot to mention that you'd like to bring up about Kubernetes? Um, there's uh, lots and lots of uh, areas that need to be better uh, in, in Kubernetes. So um, if you are someone who, you know, wants to get into this, but also really want to like contribute to open source, um, it's definitely a really good project because there are just so many things you can work on, um, whether that's core Kubernetes features, but or or just like things that touch Kubernetes. Um, so, for example, logging, uh, monitoring, um, uh, you know, like uh, encryption, um, identity. So those are things that you can do sort of like not part of Kubernetes, but it's it, those are important parts of Kubernetes that may not necessarily like live uh, as part uh, as core Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is built in such a way that um, it all the APIs are actually highly extend, extendable. Um, so if you want to write your own custom uh, definitions, you can you can do that and then um, having, uh, define a, a certain way to run your own application or, or your own um, solutions on top of Kubernetes and have other people reference it. Um, and that's something called um, custom res resource definition. Uh, so for example, like a lot of the database systems, so like MySQL or um, Couchbase, what they have done is they've created or extended Kubernetes by having custom resource definitions to create custom APIs for their applications so that when they deploy their solution, all they need to reference is that custom API. Mm. So those are definitely very exciting areas. Um, so if you're interested, those are definitely places to, to play around. Very cool. And then how does somebody actually get started with Kubernetes? Like what, is there a good resource for, for learning about this that you recommend? Um, I think there's definitely uh, a lot and lots of resources off of uh, the official Kubernetes.io uh, okay. website. So, um, but I would say most of the docs are more like um, there's sometimes there's architectural design, but more more things are like conceptual, right? Uh, conceptually, this is how it works, and um, and and here are the commands to run. Um, but if you want to like kind of look at new things, um, that's where you can go to uh, the Kubernetes uh, GitHub org um, and look for like docs and design uh, design docs to, to look at how how the communities are making some of the design choices. Um, another thing you can get yourself involved is uh, joining the Kubernetes Slack channel, uh, sorry, Slack org. Um, and then within that Slack org, there's a lot of different um, SIGs, so special interest groups. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's SIGs for identity, there's SIGs for networks, uh, networking, and there's one for Azure, um, there's one for apps, right? So so if you're pa really passionate about a, a sub area in Kubernetes, you can join those uh, SIGs, and then there are like weekly phone calls, uh, meetings that you can go to. 
um, it's the, the entire community is really, really open. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then also, uh, check out docs, uh, on Microsoft.com, um, uh, under AKS, there's actually a lot of like get started, do- uh, um, documentations. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? Uh, for the dev tip of the week this week, hold on. I closed my window on accident. I have automatic window reopener. <laughs> no, uh, the .NET source code browser. Um, it's really awesome. Once again, when Microsoft puts out a uh, code online, but the .NET core source code is available at source.dot.dot.net. So it's source.dot.dot.net. Um, <laughs> we'll have a link is, in the show notes. <laughs> well, we'll have a link. Yeah. But it's really cool. I mean, you can see like what int32 is or like the uh, cryptography APIs are. You can see all of the code and all of the comments that go in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used this tons of times when something's not working quite as I, I think it should. I can pop it open and be like, oh, that's why it's working like that. Or um, sometimes I'll be browsing the code and be like, you know, that's a really good pattern they're using or some, you know, I, I'm able to improve my coding style based upon what I see there. So um, just remember that you can go to uh, uh, source.net. <laughs> Fun to say, too. I don't think that's helping, and, Carl. <laughs> and, um, and and just check out, see how it's built. It, it's pretty cool. And uh, just a, a little shout out to Neil Turner. He had posted this on Twitter, and I got it from him. Cool, cool. Okay, Rita, there's a game that we play on the show. I have this kid's game called Would You Rather?, uh, so I'm going to ask you a, a question here. Would you rather be friends with a witch or a giant? Giant. <laughs> yeah, but uh, what, what's your what's your reasoning there? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It just feels like then I can I don't know like see things really far away. Yeah, but don't witches have powers? <laughs> that seems like yeah, that but they can one. but they can also be evil, right? Yeah, but you're friends with them. So I don't know. I'm not trying to sway your opinion. I'm just, I think my answer yeah. would be different. Um, the giant would be cool, though, too. I mean, there's not many of those around. So, uh, okay, Carl, <laughs> if you were shrunk to the size of a thimble, would you rather have to run across the playing area of a pinball machine during a game or across an air hockey table during a game? <laughs> I would say pinball just because you have no footing on air hockey and those things go a lot faster. Yeah. Well, and in a pinball machine, like I feel like it's, it's it, like Indiana Jones. Yeah. It's like, you could like parkour your way across the table. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you, and, and the ball does move much slower to your point. So, um, that's a, that's a really good point. Okay. Rita, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Rita Z. Z-H-A-N-G. Okay. And you can also check me out on my blog post, uh, my blog, which is RitaZH.com. Okay. And I also my GitHub handle is RitaZH. Okay, very cool. And uh, where can people find you, Carl? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Rita, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about containers and Docker and orchestration and Kubernetes and all the things related to that. Awesome. It's been great uh, being here. 